partly um, just where we are in terms of you know, speaking about this progressive deepening of meditation instruction and partly um, meeting with some of you and exploring a little together. I thought I'd uh, just offer some reflections this afternoon about some of the bumps in the road that we encounter some of the friction um, that of course is the same friction that plays out you know I mean it's the friction that plays out in our minds right it's the friction that plays out in the ways we orientate ourselves to reality and as such it's really applicable to any situation, any relationship, any activity, any moment. But given that this is our activity, this is our moment, this is our relationship, right? And over these days, and to look at those that friction in the context of uh, some of the ways these these bumpy places of difficulties arise um, in relationship to meditation or on on meditation retreat you know there's uh, there's all kinds of ways to experience difficulty and you know there's no doubt that being on retreat can be difficult sometimes it can be often think of retreat as a kind of humbling process it's humbling maybe even humiliating sometimes to just be confronted with oneself consistently, consistently, to actually willingly confront oneself with oneself consistently over days and to see the you know, some of the coarse patterns that uh, might arise and yet also even as we settled seeing some of the subtler elements, that sort of low-level restlessness that we might recognize. And on the one hand, you know, we have this kind of liberating vision of practice, a vision of living fully and fluidly and freely. And it's beautiful. And we kind of evoke that vision and we orientate towards that vision. And yet at the same time, inevitably, just the very fact of evoking that freeness shows us whatever unfreeness is there. To evoke freeness is also to reveal friction. And then, of course, that becomes an opportunity to actually to, to see and to study the, the friction that we come up with, the ways that we create or just experience difficulty. So, as I say, sometimes... It can feel hard to be here, physically hard. Something about the consistency of posture, hours and hours a day can feel hard, as well as those extra, uh, the elements of physical pain that aren't really to do with just the just sitting around on the floor or on the chair, but are to do, as we've said, with the kind of... um, with energetic tension patterns, you know, hot spots, places, and in us, and ways in which we've we've 
stored, compacted, um, somatized, really, uh, various bits of undigested material. It could be hard to be with all of that. It can be hard to be with one's restless mind or one's dull mind or one's craving mind. can be hard to be with one's um, self-images, with some of one's self-talk. It can be really hard to be with the way we see, the, the habit of the way I treat myself. And the tendency, like we said the other day, to be hard and complicated, rather than simple and gentle. So there's a certain, you know, inevitability, pretty much, pretty much, in exposing ourselves in this kind of way over this kind of time to the fact that we come up against, you know, some of the rub of that, some of the difficulty of that. It's partly mentioning it just to normalize it, right? And maybe had that experience of, you know, Thinking, oh, it's just it's just me and my difficulty, you know, because everyone else looks like we say we can't see what's going on. Everyone else looks so peaceful. Everyone else looks like they've got it. This meditation thing. I mean, look at you all. You look lovely. You look like you're having a beautiful, peaceful time. Some some of you even are. <laughs> so. We take, you know, Buddhist language, first arrow, right? First arrow difficulty. You know, it's hard. Human experience, you know, it's just it's built in. But it says, oh, it's hard, right? Aging is hard. Sickness is hard. Death is hard. Having what you don't want is hard. Not having what you do want is hard. Right? Dukkha is the word that I'm translating as hard here. You know? Hard to bear. And then you know, we get the opportunity, not just, not just some kind of uh, masochistic quality of exposing ourselves to that which is difficult, but we get the opportunity to see, oh, what can I do? What's, what's, um, what's a gracious way to meet difficulty? A spacious way to meet difficulty, a fluid way to meet difficulty, a free way to meet difficulty. Because the tendency is, you know, to make a lot of ego drama out of difficulty. Why me? Why this? Why now? It's one form of ego drama. Comparison, another form of ego drama. Comparison with our neighbour and their supposed lovely time we think they're having on retreat, or you know, comparison with others, comparison with previous retreats, comparison with my ideal how I think, you know, I should be, etc. It's another kind of ego drama. You can fill in the dots for your own particular brand of ego drama.
I remember once being on retreat and having some difficulty, and it was it was like um, a month of retreat, three ten day retreats back to back. Right. So you could do the first ten days, or second ten days, or third ten days, or all of it. And my idea was to do all of it, but by about day fifteen, I was having difficulty, <laughs> or at least the difficulty had reached the point. I was in India, it was you know polluted in the north, cold, foggy, terrible conditions in the monastery, sixty men sleeping and snoring and farting together in. One big basement on straw mats with rats. You wake up in the night and the rats will be pulling the straw out of our straw mats to make a nest with. And I started to dream of the beach. Oh, I, could, I could be in Goa. It's just a short train ride away. And I started to make a lot of ego drama about the fact that I wasn't in Goa. <laughs> I went to see the teacher and I said, oh, I said, I've, I've been thinking about leaving at the end of this retreat. I, it just seems difficult and I feel like I'm really going through it here and I, I've been thinking I should, I, I really want to go to the beach. I, I, what should I do? And the teacher looks at me with a big smile. He says, go to the beach. <laughs> and it was, I, was, I was so not expecting that answer. I, I totally n- Knocked me for six. I was somehow I'd built up in my drama. You know, I have to stay. I have to stay. I have to stay. But I want to go to the beach, and I was expecting him to give me all kinds of good reasons why I should stay. And this is the dharma, and this is the practice, and this is the thing. And he's just, he's just big smile. He says, "Hey, why don't you go to the beach?" <laughs> um, I said, "But, but, but I love this practice." But I really want to commit to this practice. But I really want to deepen in this practice. I really, I really want to stay with this practice. He said, oh, so why don't you stay? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the effect of it was, you know, he, just, he didn't mind either way, right? He didn't mind. Okay. You want to go to the beach? Okay. Oh, you love this practice? You want to stay? Okay. Just it kind of he, he with him holding it very spaciously, very graciously, it just somehow pricked the bubble of all the ego drama I was making, making so much you know so much, making so much out of being here, and making so much out of there, out of me not being there, out of the possibility of going there, out of what it would be like there. Just a beach, actually. You know, I can't remember now. <laughs> I can't remember now. I said that retreat every year for like for ten years, and sometimes I went to the beach afterwards, and I can't remember then if that was a staying year or a going year. Um, I remember it was the year my daughter my daughter was going to be born. That year, it was four months before she was born. I was thinking that might be my last chance to go to the beach. <laughs> really, uh, so you might be experiencing physical difficulty. You know, 
discomfort in the sitting, or some emotional difficulty, discomfort. It might be some situational difficulty and discomfort as well. Sometimes you have difficulty adapting to a new place. You might be hot at night, for example, and not sleep so well, or we've been hearing tales of hornets in the room, or somebody else got locked in their room today, had to take the entire, like the mechanism broke, had to take the entire door and frame out just so they could get to the meditation hall. You know, situational difficulty arises. There's no guarantee that your door will work. Or that your tent zip will work. So, you know, physical difficulty, emotional difficulty, uh, mental difficulty, situational difficulty. We kind of try and do our best. We want to look after you. We'd love you, you know. Like that work we were spending yesterday, may all beings be happy. It's like, oh, may you all come to the Mulan, have a wonderful retreat. Maybe Sarah even said that often at the opening talk. They say, oh, I hope you have a really wonderful retreat. When I hear them say that, I think, yeah, we hope so, right? <laughs> we love you to have. But of course, you have a mixture of wonderful and difficult. So with that kind of difficulty, I feel like the real invitation is to let the difficulty kind of tenderize the heart. You know, sometimes it's not so much about doing things, so much about it. It's about oh, letting, just acknowledging, oh, right now, it's hard. Oh, this is the moment when it's hard to be here. Oh, it's physically hard in this sitting, to sit here. It's, oh, it's emotionally hard right now. That painful situation from my life or that difficult relationship it just it keeps impinging on things. So oh, it's hard to keep feeling that. There's a kind of it's very, it's very simple in some ways, but there's a real there's a potency in just acknowledging. You know, that again, that saying of Arjun Sachito, Arjun Sumedho, right now it's like this. Sometimes the like thisness, it's a hard moment. And there's that quality, the Pali word is kanti, kanti. It means patient endurance. Maybe some of you have heard me speak about it before. It's in the, in the chanting we used to do at the monastery. There's this line, kanti paranang tapotitika. Patient endurance burns up defilements supremely. <laughs> it's rather that sort of stiff language of translations from the Pali from like a hundred years ago. I don't tend to think defilements isn't really, I don't think it's a particularly helpful word. It's more helpful to think, oh, difficulty, this is difficulty, rather this is me experiencing defilement. But anyway, patient endurance burns up defilement supremely. And there's something about the, the, la- the language of it being a little stiff. When we used to chant it, it always sort of struck me as a little odd, that line. And also, I was 19, right, when I was first in the monastery. Patient endurance wasn't on my radar. Right? I, wanted, I was you know, impatient uh, depth. That's what I wanted. Impatient, uh, like I wanted to bore a hole in consciousness and get as deep as I can, and then enlightenment, please. 
So, you know, I was meditating hard for that. And I, yeah. So the, the line struck me strange, and I didn't really realize that it wasn't just the, the, the line, it wasn't just the words, patient endurance burns up defilement. It was the idea of just you know, hanging out with difficulty, patiently enduring, like letting my heart be tenderized by the fact that, you know, it was hard. It was those first, that first three months I spent in the monastery were really hard. And they were wonderful in some ways as well. I was really turned on by practice. You know, there was nothing else I wanted to do. And, oh, you know, just sitting there with my own restless, confused, fearful, um, scatty, nervous mind. And also, it was monsoon season as well. And the mosquitoes were really intense. Really intense. Sometimes we'd sit there in the evening and the sound, just the sound of the mosquito, and you'd be breathing in mosquitoes through the nose. Intense. Like the tractor. Huh? Like the tractor. <laughs> yeah, like the... Yeah. And it was so damp in the, in the jungle there, thick jungle, the sunlight didn't really come in, and monsoon season, like 95% humidity... And if you left you, if I left my lungi on the floor just overnight while I slept, it would have spores growing on it by the morning, like mold <laughs> growing on it. Nothing ever dried for three months. Never ever dry. <laughs> Clothes were never dry. Skin was never dry. Hair was never dry. You sleeping under a kind of damp, smelly, <laughs> moldy sheet, just a very thin sheet, and, you know. Now I look back on those days with this great fondness and nostalgia. But it was hard. Kanti Paranang. You know, so that sense of, I guess, you know, I really just want to say when in those moments where it feels hard to be here, just the, the support of acknowledging, oh yeah, it's hard. And, you know, caring for the one who's having a hard time. That's what I mean by letting it tenderize your heart, right? And just care for the one. Oh, Martin's having a hard time today. Martin's legs hurt. Martin's mind's uncooperative. Martin doesn't like his bed. Martin, whatever it is. Oh, poor Martin. (laughs) And then you also can get into the difficulty of kind of, uh, of doubt. And often they lead on, right? One kind of difficulty leads on to another kind of difficulty. So it might be that you know, some physical difficulty, you know, might be that there's some you know, emotional hurt or pain that impacts us. It might be that there's something uncomfortable in the situation. And then how easily that leads into doubt. Doubt in you know the retreat, for example. Why? Why did I come? Why did I choose such a long retreat? Why did I choose this retreat? Why did I choose this teacher? You know, whatever. Doubt in the situation. Doubt in the the authority in any or the one who seems to have the power in any situation. In this case, you know, me or the mulan in general. 
or doubting one's own capacity. And then, you know, there can be just that arising of doubt and the importance of being able to recognize, you know, because we so easily identify with the doubt and then all the focus goes to that which we have doubt in. You know, once you start to have doubt in something or someone, you can find endless amounts of corroborating evidence, right? Just to see, the the eyes and the ears and the senses only go to the, you know, the fault-finding point. And we lose all the rest. It's just how important it is in the in when doubt's gotten hold of us in some way to actually recognize it's very freeing, very helpful to see, oh, this is doubt. Because doubt doesn't present saying, oh, I'm, I'm doubt now. I'm going to come and I'm going to kind of, you know, spin a whole negative story about things. Right? It's much more insidious than that. It just starts to look at something saying, you know, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. And actually, this isn't right. And, then, and it has this kind of corrosive effect, right? a corrosive effect on our confidence, a corrosive effect on our, kind of, on our relaxation, on our ease. And often, what's, what's most effective or helpful or necessary with doubt is, is just that recognition, knowing that it's doubt spinning a story rather than it's the truth about the situation. And particularly self-doubt. And the way that can arise in all kinds of pernicious ways. Like I mentioned on the first first evening, you know, one's in good company. Buddha suffered from self-doubt. That night of awakening when Mara comes, so... You know, the old traditions, mostly, same Greeks and Romans. Uh, um, the uh, Hindu Buddhist traditions as well. Most of the big, there's a kind of mythical way of processing experience. So, right, so there's a tendency to exteriorize. And we have a much more psychological way of processing experience, so we tend to interiorize. So we say, oh, I, I you know, I, I, I had a lot of self-doubt. Right? We attribute the doubt to an inner mechanism. Whereas in the older traditions, you attribute things to outer mechanisms. So you've got the various kind of gods of different qualities. So, you know, then, the, you know, like in the Greek tradition, then, you know, somebody, some, suddenly, who's the Greek god? Athena? Who's the, who's the Greek god of love? Is that Athena? Aphrodite. Who's Athena? Well, <laughs> you see how well I know my Greek history. So Aphrodite appeared to me, and somehow, you know, in, you know, I got caught up in Aphrodite's something or other, and I started to feel lustful or loving or whatever. So there's that exteriorizing quality. Same in the Buddhist tradition. So Mara is the the figure, right, of the of doubt. Mara literally means marna, marna to to beat or to kill. So Mara is the Beater, the killer, the pain in the ass. Mara comes, first Mara, Buddha sitting, first Mara sends his daughters to dance naked in front of the Buddha. So mythical language, Mara's daughters come and like, you know, 
wiggle their chest at the Buddha. Right? Psychological language, the way we process, we'd say, oh, I was, I was trying to meditate, but I just, you know, I kept getting all this sexual fantasy. Right? Same experience. But the Buddha was very equanimous. He just cooled it out, just let the heat arise, you know. And didn't respond to Mara's daughters, they gave up. And then Mara starts hiding behind a bush, firing arrows at the Buddha. Right? So mythical language, Mara's arrows, psychological language. Oh, I'm trying to meditate, but the pain in my legs. But Buddha, steady, cool, non-reactive. So in the mythical language, the arrows, as they arrive at the Buddha, they just turn to flowers. Beautiful image. And that's, you know, somebody was speaking about this the other day, right? And the relationship to pain, it's hard to be here, discomfort, but you're gracious with it, spacious with it. And you don't need to contract around it. Kind of relax into it. And the transformation, so that that which was a moment ago painful actually can tr transform itself. So Mara's strategies aren't working. So then Mara comes along and says, in the guise, psychological language, and the, and the guise of self-doubt, mythical language, Mara approaches the Buddha and says, who do you think you are? What do, what do you think you're doing sitting here under this tree? You really think you could, you've got their kind of arrogance to imagine that you could sit here and, and uh, understand anything about the great matters of life and death and liberation? You know, how, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, mythical language, but it's mapped so perfectly onto our own experience, right? And the tendency to just generate self-doubt. I remember, again, those first few months in the monastery, I, you know, I, I wanted to really, I really wanted to devote my whole life to the Dharma. But I just felt like I can't do it. I just, I can't do it. And like I say, I wasn't very patient, right? So I was like, you know, I've been here two months. Come on. <laughs> so I started to, a lot of doubt in my capacity. I'm like, how am I going to dedicate my life to the Dharma without actually having to practice? Because it's just, it's too hard. It's too much. I can't do it. So I thought, maybe I'll have to become a scholar. Maybe I'll have to study Pali. Then I can feel immersed in the Dharma, but I, but I won't have to actually <laughs> kind of, you know, really deal with all this stuff because I can't do it. It was very strong, this sense of I can't do it. I can't do it. And I, I, by this point, somehow, all the rest of my life had dropped away. I'd been, you know, in retreat for these months and I'd been, I'd been practicing and living in the Himalayas for some months before that. And I, you know, everything had sort of fallen away. I didn't. I didn't have any other reference points for my life other than this. And then, but I felt like I can't do it. I can't do it. And then you know, one, one morning, we used to get up at, um, at 3.30 and sit till 4.30, and then we'd walk across to where Ajahn Buddhadasa lived, in the, in, to his kuti in the monastery. And he, he liked to speak early in the morning. It was, he was eight, in his mid-80s, the end of his life, and he had most energy in the morning. So he'd come out, and two monks supporting him each side, and sit. He'd look very frail, and then he would pull, very slowly, he would pull his leg up like this. 
And then he would come to life. And then he would give three-hour Dharma talk. From five till eight. And it would start to be dark at the beginning. And then as he would, he would start speaking and the light would start to come and the jungle and the noises would start to come and the bird song and the orange sky. And it was just extraordinary. Speaking often about just very simple but referring always to the, the life around and referring to the jungle and the sounds and the light and speaking about impermanence and dependent origination a lot. And just uh, very, very... Uh, I used to feel like I'd, I would, felt like I was listening to those talks in this state of kind of suspended animation. You know, no extraneous thought. And just this sort of, like somebody was saying to me the other day, this way of listening to teachings where one's not listening to the ideas, one's not agreeing or disagreeing, one's not looking to see if that might be true, or, or, or one's just one's letting it penetrate so that it meets the experience. Oh, oh, that's, oh yeah, I can, I can find that in my experience. And just letting the, uh, you know, absorbing teachings rather than listening to them. And then one morning, I just, I heard him speak about doubt and the perniciousness of doubt and also the emptiness of doubt and the construction of doubt and the capacity to recognize doubt. And I suddenly saw these kind of weeks I had been, you know, in my mind, sort of moping around, thinking, oh God, I'm going to have to become a scholar of Buddhism because I can't do this. And it was, just, it was very, very helpful to just, to not just the teaching, not just recognizing that I had been doubting, but somehow seeing the whole mirage of doubt, the construct of doubt, the demon of doubt, the the... Uh, yeah, the demon of doubt. And what happens when, you know, so Mara, having dealt with the dancing daughters and the, and the arrows and all, and the first thing, like we were saying the other day, he touches the ground, right? And kind of like rec- feeling for that support of life. And then recognizing that support. Oh, hold on, the whole universe is supporting me being here. The ground's holding me up. Kind of life is right here. He says, "I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara." I still, you know, some of you have done whole courses around just the, those four words. I see you, Mara. I recognize that construct. I see the doubt as the doubt. It's not the truth about me. It's not the truth about the situation. It's just the the complex of doubt. The construction of doubt. When you know the doubt as a doubt, or let's say to the extent that one knows the doubt as a doubt, to that extent one knows and doesn't have to listen to it. One doesn't have to take it on. One doesn't have to believe in it as the truth. So in those moments of difficulty and discouragement, Doubt and despair, even just to 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 look for the 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 doubtful nature of the construct, <coughs> and you know, 
Doubt can be mild or doubt can be very strong. Doubt can build up a whole kind of vortex of negativity where we find endless things to complain about from the way people leave their flip-flops on the (laughs) steps. That was a big one for me. I used to get very upset about how people left their flip-flops on the steps. Again, monastery training, you leave your, it's a mindfulness practice, you leave your foot, your flip-flops together, like that. I took great pride, spiritual pride, that's another thing Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to talk about, leaving my flip-flops together. When I saw other people, some, that was bad enough, but the very worst was that. <laughs> oh my God. Extreme. The vortex of negativity can latch onto any kind of thing to be pissed off about, upset about, self-righteous about, etc. To see the doubt as doubt is to penetrate the doubt. It's to... um, It's like the light of recognition dazzles breaks up, liberates the doubt. Knowing the doubt, seeing the doubt as doubt rather than the truth. I also wanted to speak a little bit about a, a different kind of difficulty, but it's one that can arise around the territory that we're exploring. You know, we've been speaking about refining and calming and the kind of the smoothing out and, and uh, fluidity of the body field and the quietening of mind and, uh, and you know, the, some of the, the bliss and pleasure and peacefulness that can come ar- about with that. But also with that, the, the nature of a quietening mind and a relaxing body is, like we were saying the other day about the boundaries softening and dissolving, that we start to lose a little bit, at least in moments, we lose some of our familiar, or we lose our primary familiar reference point. Right? What's our primary familiar reference point? Me. I'm I'm having this experience. I'm meditating. My my I'm giving my attention to my breath that's here in my body, right? etc. But when not just muscularly, but energetically, the body field really starts to relax. We lose sometimes a little bit, or quite a lot, or sometimes it can feel even totally. We lose the sense of distinction between what I would call me and what I would call not me, what I would call inner and what I would call outer. And sometimes that can be experienced as a kind of, oh, as a liberation, as a relief, as a softening, a widening, an opening. But sometimes it can also be dis- experienced as disorientating, destabilizing, frightening. Even. And even more so with mind, right? you know, all those thoughts we're having, even though a lot of them seem to just be rubbish, just clutter, what they're doing is they're constantly reinforcing the familiar sense. Oh, me, I think this, I'd like this, I go there, I remember that. All that jibber-jabber is reinforcing a familiar and kind of reassuring, even though it's annoying, it's reassuring 
Sense, oh, yeah, me, 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 yeah, me, me, me. That's really what all our thoughts are doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, me, me, yeah, yeah, me, me. <laughs> so when thought life quietens down, we stop, when we stop meing a bit, right? Oh, we lose that familiar reference point. And that, again, that can, can feel deeply relieving. But it easily also can feel disconcerting, destabilizing, um, frightening. Different ways that that can happen. It's there's a kind of there's an automatic rescue mechanism in it because if it is actually frightening, the nature of fear is fear contracts us. So if you actually if you start to feel like you're disappearing in some way or dissolving in some way or you lost your reference points. If it's frightening, the very fear, oh my God, what's happening to me, will start to reconstellate a more familiar sense of self. Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm thinking, oh, what happened then to me? What was that? You know, how did I, you know? And you get busy meing again in a way that reconstitutes yourself. And that's okay. That's the that's the, you know that's the mechanism. If something's too much, then fear is a way of kind of withdrawing from it so that it's not too much anymore. And then you know, with some familiarity, one can become increasingly trusting of allowing things to soften, spread out, and dissolve a little bit. And even though one may feel like one's vanished or disappeared or dissolved in some way, simultaneously one still knows. Here, maybe not. I'm here, but that there's hereness, or that there's awakeness, that there's presence, there's presence in the midst of this vast, unified, dissolved, wide-open, empty space. And that sense of empty space can appear in different ways. It can appear in ways that feel, as I say, relieving, or one feels grateful to be able to give oneself up to that empty space. But it can also appear as a kind of uh, a, a sort of deathly space, as a cold, dark, empty space, as a void of space. And again, if it, if it appears in a way that feels frightening, the, the fear will reconstitute it. I really just want to point to it as just part of the territory, and some of you have already been touching into that territory, and you know, maybe it comes online a little bit anyway in, the, in this kind of material. If it's not too frightening, then it's helpful to just see if you can familiarize yourself a little bit. And I know that the language of that's odd, because it's not really me familiarizing myself, but if you can feel into the quality of space or the quality of absence or the quality of openness or the quality of darkness. Often, right, in contrast to the light and the smooth and the fluid and the peaceful that we were speaking about yesterday. In contrast to that feeling of light and smooth, suddenly it can feel dark and empty. And darkness, you know, it's interesting that we speak about being afraid of the dark. You know, when we're young, the dark is something 
fearful. But the dark, darkness can have all kinds of qualities. Often, it, the initial quality of darkness is it feels empty, it feels disorientating. Because in real darkness, you, know, you turn any way, you don't know where you are, you don't know what's out there. A couple of years ago, Gail and I did a dark retreat. So we spent a week fasting in total, total, total darkness, just sitting for a week. Very, very interesting. Really, really, it was my favorite ever retreat. I really, really loved it. It's very, but you pitch, you know, normally when we say dark, you get used to the dark after a while, right? But when you're in actual total pitch dark, there's no, nothing to get used to. There's no, you can, after a week, you can do this, nothing. You can't see nothing. Very interesting. So the world really disappears. No, no, you know, space. Time also tends to disappear because it's just one long night, right? Rhythms disappear. Very interesting. And so it becomes quite obvious that one's living in a totally mind-created universe. All there is is just mind, just consciousness. You, look, you don't get any reference points for anything except con what's conscious, what's happening in consciousness. The world is gone, time is gone, space is gone, there's no here and there, no distance. It's all gone, gone, gone. Gone into darkness, gone into emptiness. And initially, as I say, that can feel disorientating. But dark, that, that quality of absence or voidness or darkness or emptiness that we sometimes find opening up can have all kinds of other uh, qualities too. If one can stay, just stay a little, explore a little. What's it like to be here? What kind of temperature, what kind of texture? Maybe that the darkness actually starts to feel rather kind of velvety. Or that it has a kind of a, a kind of pressure, sort of depth and intensity. That uh, they're feeling like actually everything is born from darkness and finds its rest in darkness. That the. The, the blackest black of complete absence is actually the most exquisite expression of fullness and fecundity, of limitless potential. Only one way to find out. So... Sometimes that sense of a certain kind of, you know, what can appear initially as difficulty, a certain kind of disorientation or a certain kind of dissolution, a certain loss of familiar reference points can open up. In itself, it's nothing to be afraid of. Right? It actually can just be made room for. And yet, if it appears initially as something that feels fearful, that's fine. It's fine. Fear arises. Don't make a problem out of fear arising. It's quite natural and normal. And like I say, the fear itself will serve as a kind of reconstituting mechanism. So, you know, in all these difficulties, like I say, sometimes the, the, all these bumps in the road 
can be hard to be here when, when things are physically difficult or emotionally difficult or situationally difficult. It can be hard to be here when we're feeling kind of doubtful in some way. It can be hard to be here when there's a, a sense of a darkness or dissolution or a loss of the familiar. And all of those difficulties are also places of possibility where the heart can be tenderized, where clarity can see through doubt, where uh, dissolution can actually point to vastness and freedom. So on the one hand, I would love you to have no difficulties. And on the other hand, I, I kind of offer you the possibility that difficulties are blessings as well. Oh, may we meet them in this spirit for the benefit and the flowering of our own practice and the outflows of that for the benefit and the well-being of all those we have contact with and care for. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.